This is the Free Thought Project podcast. This is John Vibes. I'm joined here today by Matt Savoy and Derek Bros. We're going to talk a little bit about the tour that Derek just finished up and some of the research that he's doing with his documentary that overlaps with some of the research that we've been doing in our articles over the past couple of years. And we're going to talk about an anti-war event that me and Derek went to, as well as the Saudi journalist issue that the mainstream media has been covering and what they have been missing as well. So before we get into it, I'll turn it over to our guest, Derek Bros. allow him to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his work and the tour that he just finished. Yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me on. It's good to catch up with you all. So to the audience who might not know me, my name is Derek Bros. I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm an activist, uh, author with John, and also freelance journalist. I have a radio show here in Houston on 90.1 KPFT called Freethinker Radio. I do a lot of local journalism as well as focusing on national and international issues, writing for Free Thought, Anti-Media, Mint Press News, Ben Swan's Truth and Media, as well as running my own website, The Conscious Resistance Network, at theconsciousresistance.com. And generally, my philosophy is to try to wake people up to a lot of the issues we talk about on the journalist side, as well as promoting mindfulness and you know internal individual healing as a way to circumvent and kind of route around these systems. And that has led me to writing books with John, as well as uh, most recently doing a national speaking tour. I've done two of them now. Last year it was called the Decentralize Your Life Tour. This year it was called the Liberate Your Mind Tour. And the general goal is to host events in communities all around the country where we I give a two-hour presentation called the Pyramid of Power that dives real deep into the institutions, the organizations, and the people that stand in the way of us being mentally, physically, and spiritually liberated. Um, you know, everything from big pharma, the corporate media, the government, you know, we, we really break it down. And then the tour also involves guided meditations and uh, conscious music, traveling with a uh, live psychedelic reggae band, trying to bring the, the arts into the movement as well. And also volunteering in every city we visit, trying to get people to realize that we don't need to rely on corporations or government to take care of ourselves. We should lead by example and just do what we can to, to inspire others. Um, yeah, so it's kind of all those elements together. And uh, we just wrapped up this past weekend on the East Coast. So from mid-May till just this past weekend, I've been on the road off and on uh, just speaking and spreading these ideas. And it's pretty much what I do on a, on a daily basis, write articles, do video content, research, work on documentaries, give talks. And it's all geared towards trying to get people to wake up to the crimes of government as well as corporate power and hopefully through that process start to look for solutions. And when they get to the solutions, try to direct them towards basically our books and things like that, the more philosophical side of the conversation. For those who are new to this philosophical side of the conversation, what me and Derek advocate is a strategy called agorism, which is basically taking matters into your own hands instead of waiting for politicians to 
come around and make promises that they're going to end up breaking. This is actually how we have become the alternative media and how people in the cryptocurrency space have become their own banks and, and have tried to free people from banks and stuff like that. That is actually a controversial issue that we're probably going to get more into on the show as we go on in future episodes. But there are plenty of examples of agorism. That guy, Cody Wilson, who recently got in a lot of trouble for unrelated things, was 3D printing guns to circumvent gun laws. So there are so many ways that we can circumvent the laws that oppress us, and we can starve the beast by avoiding taxes as well when it actually suits us and when we won't get in trouble for it. Generally, yeah, the idea is whatever problem or issue we're addressing, we try to offer people an alternative. So like you said, whether it's taxes or you don't like the way this corporation's operating, we'll stop you know, spending your money on their products, stop supporting them, support alternatives, promote alternatives. You know, Essentially, not voting, not violence, but a third path trying to create the next stage as opposed to working within the current system or trying to overthrow that system. Yeah, exactly. And that is kind of what we've been trying to do with alternative media here uh, until we've hit a wall quite recently. Instead of destroying, the, the the philosophy is to create and you build a new system that shows the obsolescence of the old and that that's enough to bring down the old system. When you were here and visited, Derek, you, you discussed some kind of really interesting, uh, intense kind of things that you ran into on your tour while you were simultaneously filming a documentary that you're working on uh if if you want to talk about as much of that as you're comfortable with because i know that some of things are still in production and everything like that and i know the first one's coming out soon and then you have a part one coming out later so i i I don't want to reveal too much but i know that there is some some really interesting stops that you made along the way that weren't official stops on the tour (laughs) yeah exactly Uh, no i'm happy to share some information with you guys and give it to the free thought audience first because as you said it, i haven't talked about this publicly I, you know i had c- private conversations like with yourself and a few others and things like that but i haven't quite put out what i'm working on yet but uh so the first project which if everything works out will be out by this week if not for sure by the end of october by next week at the latest um we're, we're getting really close but it's a project called bringing down jeffrey epstein and it is a yeah, a documentary. It's probably going to come out to be about 20 to 25 minutes long. It's a deep dive, even just within 25 minutes, probably a deeper dive than most of the articles, most of the, definitely the video content out there that you've seen on Epstein. Um, it, it, it goes deeper into that. And for the audience who may not know who Jeffrey Epstein is, I mean, I'd be surprised if any of your audience doesn't know because I mean, I've written about it on Free Thought and I know you guys have covered his saga for years. But for anybody who's unfamiliar, Jeffrey Epstein is a billionaire uh, pedophile, sex offender. I mean, that's um, there's no um, editorializing there. That's just what he is. He is a convicted sex offender who's also a billionaire who made his money in New York City, apparently in the 80s, helping a lot of wealthy people uh, avoid taxes and um, has just hobnobbed and rubbed elbows with all sorts of powerful people from Henry Kissinger to the Clintons to the Trumps to Hollywood elite, Kevin Spacey, uh, Alec Baldwin, you know, a number of other people, uh, Prince Andrew, Duke of York from Britain, uh, Courtney Love. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of the powerful and influential people that this guy has been connected to over the years. And our documentary is going to be an expose, a deep dive into this, this saga of this, of this case. And so, again, some more brief background. In 2008, 
uh, a trial against him began after a couple of years of investigation down in Florida, Palm Beach County, where one of his houses is. He's got a several several houses as well as his own private island. Um, but his house in Palm Beach, Florida, was the subject of the beginning of this investigation. And essentially what happened was a young girl who had said she'd been molested by Jeffrey Epstein went to her parents and she uh, basically said, like, hey, I was paid to go massage this old guy now named Jeff. And, uh, you know, he paid me to massage him while he touched me and, you know, did these inappropriate things. I mean, we're talking girls that are 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. But Epstein did reportedly not like them to be much older than that. And that that young girl's uh, account to her parents basically began a deeper investigation where they started to look into see what was going on and what they uncovered was there was this web of at least 40 different girls who've now come now now adult women who came forward and filled out a sworn affidavit saying that you know and they all described similar things these women are totally disconnected from each other but they all describe a nearly identical scenario of being approached by a young girl named Haley Robson who was paid by one of Jeffrey Epstein's uh, close confidence, his sometimes girlfriend and uh, alleged, you know, sex slave that he that he bought at a very young age. But these two older women, adult women, worked with a young teenage girl named Haley Robson. Haley Robson then recruited these other girls from junior high and, and early high school to come to his uh, his house, do a massage in exchange for money, and that's all they were told. And upon arrival. They would be brought upstairs. They would come into this room. Epstein would walk out of the bathroom in just a towel. There was a massage table in the center of the room. He would lay down either on his back or his his, uh, chest and instruct them to give him a massage. He would usually tell them to take off their clothes or take off their top or, you know, do something to that extent. Some of the girls complied. Uh, Others said, you know, they were kind of resistant. And uh, a number of them report that he would pull out a white vibrator and kind of poke at them and just rub it on them and things like that. And he would essentially just masturbate while they're giving him a massage. And uh, this, you know, this went on for some time. We really don't know when it started, how long it's been going on. But we do know that once the initial report uh, made its way to the law enforcement, uh, more than 40 women eventually came forward. There was a raid on his house. And there's video of this raid that exists online. And that began this whole investigation into Epstein from 2005 leading up to the actual trial against him in 2008. Unfortunately, the trial in 2008 led to him getting what everybody calls a sweetheart deal, where he basically went from being charged with potentially you know, molestation of up to 40 different women, which would have easily put him away for life, to one single count of solicitation of sex with a minor, um, and was allowed to to essentially go free. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison. He only did 13 months, but he didn't even actually have to go to a prison. He got to go to the local county jail where he had his own private cell. And he was allowed to leave for 16 hours a day uh, for work release and basically just sleep in jail. And then he got out for 13 months. He was on house arrest. But, of course, the house arrest included being able to fly to his private island and things like that. And he did have to register as a sex offender. But other than that, that was 2008, and here we are a decade later, and those women are still fighting for justice because a lawyer by the name of Bradley Edwards, who, by the way, I, in my book, is a real hero because this guy's been fighting this case pro bono for a decade now. He's not trying – you know, this is not just some lawyer like thinking this is a, hey, we can go after a billionaire and, and make all these elaborate claims and maybe get some money out of him, which is what Jeffrey Epstein has tried to make it seem like. Um, this guy is dedicated to helping these women, and he knows that, that they're facing a lot of powerful people. 
So they're now suing Epstein again and trying to get the case to be retried, claiming that uh, the sweetheart deal that was put forward by the, the local prosecutor team in Palm Beach and um, later emails revealed, and this is all in much more in detail in the documentary, but later emails reveal that there were, that they colluded. The prosecutors colluded with Jeffrey Epstein's team and helped him develop this sweetheart deal and even like the language they were going to use so that the judge wouldn't ask too many questions. And because of that, Epstein has now been countersued and Bradley Edwards is fighting this case saying that the sweetheart deal, what they call a non-prosecution agreement, um, violated the crimes, uh, Victims' Crimes Rights Act, which essentially says that if there's a sex crime or some sort of crime like this, that if the the person behind it, Epstein in this case, is going to be cut a deal, the victims must be notified and they must be made part of the process so they can actually have some say in this. And instead, the, the team lied to the victims and said there was nothing going on. They would let them know what was happening while behind the scenes they were crafting this secret deal with Epstein and he was allowed to go free, as I said. So this case is still going on a decade later. Brad Edwards is now still representing a, a handful of those women out of the original 40 who are trying to push for this and to get a retrial. Uh, they're not necessarily looking for monetary damage. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein pays out millions of dollars to all these women already. He already paid out millions of dollars to the victims who have claimed these various things going on. And now Brad Edwards is essentially just trying to fight for accountability or at the very least to get the truth to come out about the case because most of it was kind of brushed under the rug. And as I've dove deeper into this research, I've found out so much more about this. And, and I'm really excited to get this out because – you know, people talk about the connection to the Clintons, 26 times that Bill Clinton flew on uh, the Jeffrey Epstein's private plane to his island. Uh, but there's also some pretty poignant uh, connections to our current president as well. Alexander Acosta. Yeah, that's a that's definitely a big one. That and that's I'm so I'm glad you bring that up, brother, because like that to me is just like I don't understand how people don't see that. Like so, Alexander Acosta, he's Trump's current labor secretary. This guy was a part of the team that helped that down in Florida that helped craft this sweetheart deal. I mean, he's dirty as as the rest of them. I mean, this is it's crazy. And you know what we've seen though is since this case has gone on with Epstein the last decade and even more and more so, the Trumps and the Clintons and most of the people connected to Epstein have backed away. And you know this is why during the presidential election, for example. Trump didn't go after Clinton for her connection or her connection to Epstein and vice versa because they know they're both connected to this, you know, guy that none of them want to be associated with. So they sort of left that out of all their attacks on each other, right? Um and but yeah, on the tour, I was actually able to since Jeffrey Epstein is a registered sex offender, all of his addresses are public. And so I was able to go film a short little introductory scene for the documentary outside of Jeffrey Epstein's Palm Beach house in this extremely wealthy neighborhood which also happens to be just down the block from Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate down there in Palm Beach County. Um, and yeah, that was, I mean, I'll just say like, it was a very quick little trip to that spot because I was kind of creeped out by the whole thing. And I don't know if that's just, you know, me reading into whatever, but just the fact that I'm standing outside of this house and it's like, wow, this is where everything went down. Like in that house is where they brought these young girls and all the craziness happened, you know, and this is from where Epstein, some of the girls who, who speak about this and who spoke in their affidavits said that the ones that he took a particular liking to, you know, he invited back fairly often. And then more than that, the ones he really liked, he would fly on his private jet to his private island for these parties with all these well-connected celebrities and politicians, these essentially these sex parties. And one of the women even claims, you know, she was a sex slave. And again, you know, the, this is, some of it does get into the area of speculation. I mean, we have plenty of 
court documents and things of that sort. But at the end of the day, anybody can file a lawsuit. You know, I mean, I could file a lawsuit against both you guys and claim all kinds of crazy things. It doesn't mean there's any truth to it, and it, it, it wouldn't go anywhere necessarily, right? So just a court filing alone is not evidence, but when you have 40 different women saying these things, and they're all you know, repeating the same story, and they're all disconnected from each other, the only connect, common ground they have is that they were all living you know, in this kind of general area, um, you have to start paying attention. And again, when you look into the corruption and the fact that dude, this dude just got off with this because of key players, you know, it's not like this is just some sort of like, oh, how did this happen? No, Alexander Acosta, um, uh, Rosa Villanifana. I mean, we can look at the names of these people who played a role, the judges, the, you know, all these kind of things. And then it even gets into some other stuff like the main uh, Palm Beach County Sheriff who was out there investigating, one of the two main lead investigators. He died very suddenly this May, just a couple months back. And the only things I could find, I tried to find his family. I didn't have much luck, and you know, I don't really want to harass them or bother them. But the only thing that we see about this guy's death is it says that he died of a brief illness. That's what his obituary says. That's all the listing says, and it says no other information is provided. This guy had said publicly that him and another officer were being surveyed and monitored by some unknown um, you know, they said it wasn't with their department. It was. It wasn't. They, they couldn't tell if it was another law enforcement agency or what it was. But these two cops, including the one who died, uh, both said they were under surveillance, and both of them had been very outspoken in saying that they thought it was bullshit the way that Epstein got away with this, and that they knew there was more than enough evidence. Uh, you know, the other side of the story, the prosecutors say, well, some of these women had gone on Facebook and they, they displayed prom promiscuous behavior and, you know, they were showing their ass on, on MySpace or they were talking about drinking and smoking. I mean, they just basically got attacked by Epstein's powerful lawyers. He's got uh, Dershowitz, who's this, you know, lawyer who's been well-known in the mainstream for a long time. He's also accused of being connected to this. So pretty much anytime anybody goes after Epstein, he countersues, including the lawyer, Bradley Epstein, Bradley Edwards, excuse me, Bradley Edwards actually had to fight off a, a lawsuit against Epstein because Epstein tried to allege that it was, you know, some kind of money get rich scheme or something like that. That fell through and Ep Epstein's lawsuit didn't go anywhere. But my point is because he's got money and he's got high profile lawyers, he can intimidate people either illegally or maybe through, you know, extracurricular threats of some kind. But he has been able to escape any real justice because of this, because of his connections. And the other thing is, and I think this is an important detail, is that some of these women say that, that um, well, a number of them, that when they, the ones that went to the island and actually were a part of these parties said that as soon as the parties were over, that uh, Epstein would debrief them, that he would take them you know, into the room afterwards, like say they were having sex with Bill Clinton or you know, whoever else is there, right? He would come debrief them and say, okay, so what did they tell you? And it seems as if he was using these women to get information or potentially to blackmail these various people because other women, some of the women say that he was video, secretly videotaping all the stuff going on in his private island. If there's truth to that, then that is the reason this guy is getting away with everything because more than likely he's got documented video evidence of pe powerful people in high places doing all kinds of disturbing things involving children, and that could very well be the reason this guy has escaped any real justice uh, for at least a decade and obviously his whole life. And, you know, in the documentary, we start looking at other connections as well because there's just so much to it. And even in this documentary, we're, we're going to do a whole lot. It'll probably end up being a second piece specifically just on the Trump and Epstein connections. Um, and then, as you mentioned, John, this is actually leading into a bigger documentary that we haven't even started yet, but I've been gathering data and information, and I also did film an interview for that one.
and um, I can get into that if you guys want to hear about that that aspect. Yeah, I think that that story is extremely fascinating. There was one other um, the, in May of this year that kind of backed up what Bros was saying about a sweetheart deal, and it, been, it the FBI dumped like 300 documents showing yeah. how Epstein got this, why he got that sweetheart deal, and it showed that he, he may have been uh, an FBI informant. And uh, he was given the FBI exchange, information in exchange for this lenient sentence. And um, so, like, that was a, a, a pretty huge revelation that happened in May of this year. And it was it kind of just went under the radar as far as, as mainstream media goes. So that would make perfect sense along with him kind of blackmailing these people and having cameras on his island to, you know, make sure that he had dirt on everybody. Absolutely. And uh, I just want to add to that. I'm glad you brought that up, Matt. So this is just a little bit from my script. I will say this, too. So these documentaries, this style of documentary that I'm focusing on now, we did one last month. It was called The Modern Surveillance State. But these are deep dives into issues that I think are going to be historically important. You know, they're not just going to be old news in a week or, you know, this is going to be relevant information. But we're going to be releasing the full script and transcript with all the links and all the sources and everything. So people who want to get it, get into it can really do so. But from the script, we say here that um, the woman behind the suit against Epstein state that they believe his connections helped him get his sweetheart prison deal. This speculation may be accurate in, in light of recently released documents, which indicate that Epstein cut a deal with the FBI. And uh, as Matt said, they released these documents just a few months back. One of these memos specifically says Epstein has also provided information to the FBI as agreed upon case agent advised that no federal prosecution will occur in this matter as long as Epstein continues to uphold his agreement with the state of Florida. So it seems pretty clear that he did cut some kind of a deal. And yeah, as, as you said, John, relating back to the videotaping of this whole thing, I mean, he could have turned over all kinds of stuff. Who knows what's... Uh, I don't want to feed into any of the QAnon craziness, but hey, there you go. Maybe those are the sealed indictments, right? Right. I mean, and, and Epstein wasn't some government actor, so... The information, as quoted in the documents, it would seem to be a, along the uh, personal lines, you know, not not something like he didn't have information on ISIS, right? He, he he had he had some information that the FBI wanted, and now it appears that the FBI has that, and may explain why the FBI is so powerful. This deep state can, you know, if they have all this dirt on all these powerful people like that, they're essentially puppets, you know. And uh, just one more thing on the speculation of the Epstein thing, just a kind of interesting note. I didn't dive into this aspect because I don't know that there's hard evidence of it, but it is, it is interesting. Um, there are some in this the research of Epstein who claim there are connections between him and um, Mossad uh, or you know other intelligence agencies that hit this could have been some sort of his whole thing could have been a honeypot with that purpose from the beginning to to gather information on important people and then as you said Matt now that that information may have been turned over to the FBI or some other agency there could be a lot of people walking around pretty nervous right now so I end the Epstein documentary with this little piece, and this leads us into where we're going. Unfortunately, Epstein is only one piece of this puzzle. It's impossible for him to carry out these acts alone. He works with a variety of people to feed his despicable habit. And if the allegations are even partially true, then many powerful people are involved in pedophilia and potentially trafficking of human beings. And the next documentary will explore this network of individuals and groups who contribute to this dark side of humanity. And so we start looking at this concept of... Um, some type of network like how would people who are like Epstein uh, as I said he had these two women who were partnered with him who were helping him recruit the young girls and they were also a part of this non-prosecution agreement they they were able to go free and they've since changed their names and you know changed their identities and all that kind of stuff 
But I don't think those two women were the only part of this network that Epstein was operating in. And when you start to look further into this particular topic of pedophilia and you, look, you find things like the Franklin scandal and some of these other historical um, research topics as it relates to pedophilia and politicians – you have to under like you know really have to think about that there's these politicians aren't like going out to the street themselves and recruiting kids or stealing themselves politicians and powerful people they they always have plausible deniability you know they always have at least a couple degrees of separation between them and their shady crimes and and acts that they're doing right they rely on their helpers or, or their their network to help them do these things so i believe one of these networks whether connected directly to epstein or not um, is a group known as the Finders, a cult known as the Finders. And this is a particular area of research that I stumbled on a couple of years ago and was just, I mean, it's such an intriguing area of research. And when I had first found it, it was through a couple of YouTube videos. Um, if you search the Finders, you'll find some different articles and, and a couple of YouTube videos, but nothing that really, really gets into the, the deep aspect of it. And so when I first co- came across it a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting, you know, this this cult that was alleged to have been involved in everything from Satanism to child trafficking to maybe potential CIA connections. So I kind of forgot about it for a bit. And then as I was researching the Epstein stuff, the, you know, the finders just came across my, uh, my radar again, and I started to dive deeper than I had before. And initially, the only thing that's out there that I could find was a U.S. News & World Report, which is mainstream publication uh, still to this day, had written an article in the late 80s I think it was 87 when this first started coming up, talking about the saga of this group called the Finders. And in that article, they quote, like, actual, uh, I can't remember his name, but there's an actual congressman who was alive at the time who said, like, the evidence points to this leading up to the CIA. Like, there's a lot of people who are nervous, and, you know, it's like, wow, that's, like, that's big news, right? And I, I was able to, I couldn't find any original copy of that article, so it was all on the conspiracy sites. But I did find the, the name of the journalist, and I was able to locate them, and I emailed them. And first, you know, the first step is, hey, is this article real? Did you write this? And they said, yes, I did write that. And I asked them if you could recall, you know, if they had any extra material they didn't release, or why did that congressman believe the CIA was involved? And essentially, the journalist told me, like, hey, it's been a long time, and it's been like 30 years, I don't really recall. So that's kind of where I left it. But once I started doing this documentary, I started really just diving deeper back into it, and I realized that there was a lot more information than I initially believed and you know it does take some digging but I was able to find just so many uh, first-hand source documents related to this case and 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 really start trying to connect it to the larger Epstein picture so I'll just break down briefly like what you know what the finders saga was essentially in, in 1987 and here's just kind of my thoughts on it. It's really weird. A lot of this stuff centers around Florida. Epstein's from Florida. The finders got caught in Florida. There's just – I don't know what's up going on in Florida, but it seems like some, some you know something's pulling crazy people over there. But the finders, two men dressed in black suits, essentially dressed like the stereotypical you know men in black, uh, very well dressed, with two kids who were described as disheveled, having bug bites on them, looking like they hadn't ate, just generally not being well taken care of were witnessed at a park in Tallahassee, Florida. Some anonymous witness calls the cops and says, hey, I don't know what's going on here, but this looks kind of shady. The cops show up. They question the men. The men say, hey, we're taking these kids to Mexico for a school for brilliant children. The cops don't believe it, so they take the men in, and they start investigating further. 
they re- they stop, start talking to the kids. The kids don't know what a TV is. They don't know what a phone is. And they, they can tell, like, these kids have been sheltered to some degree and are kind of disconnected from everyday life. Um, then once that Tallahassee, Florida investigation is going on, they get called by officers from the D.C. Metro Police. And one of the officers from the D.C. Metro Police says, hey, we think that the guys you just picked up may be related to a case we've been investigating up here with a group known as the Finders. Um, is there any crimes involved? And they said, well, we could potentially hold them for a couple of days for child endangerment and we'll see what happens. So that gives the D.C. police enough justification to say, OK, we're going to raid the finders warehouse. So they raid a couple of apartments and a couple of warehouses connected to the finders in D.C. And this is where things start to get crazy. They uncover and this is 1987. So they uncover this warehouse that is filled with computers like high tech looking like from by all accounts this was like high-tech stuff we would expect maybe in the 90s or early 2000s they had broadband internet they were using email uh what is known as mci mail which is one of the earliest versions of email um that they somehow had access to there was all sorts of maps from and numbers from countries around the world pakistan china etc there was instructions this is all in the police uh, police report from the dc police there was instructions on how to buy kids from from china there was pit, pictures of naked kids there was one room where they were filming scenes like it was clear they had been acting different things out and uh there was instructions which had come from their cult leader who was telling them how to get out of town to avoid detection by the local police and and actually giving them the excuse to say that they were um, you know that they were taking kids to Mexico for a school for brilliant children. So the U.S. Customs Service also gets involved in it. There's an agent by the name of Raymond J. Martinez. He came out and he wrote a report on that. So these reports are all now public record. Raymond J. Martinez's customs report. The We have, through FOIA requests, we have all the original Tallahassee police reports about the initial arrest. We have all the Metro D.C. police uh, reports from raiding the warehouse and interviews with a number of different people. So this becomes national news. It's reported everywhere. They apparently had, like, in the back of their warehouse, there was a stone circle where they apparently were building fires. There were some pictures of the kids, like, slitting goats' throats and things like that. So that got turned into, you know, this is a Satanist group. I don't know if that's if there's any truth to that or if that was maybe a kind of misdirection, misinformation, or if it was just people – freaking out because you know we do have to put it in the context of the time in the 80s there was what people now refer to as the moral panic the satanic panic where people were seeing cults and satan satanists behind every stone right and most of that was dismissed i think there's probably more truth to it than people want to believe but in this case i don't see that as like the the main concern here um that may have just been kind of a distraction but it makes public news it's 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 washington post new york times you can find these articles 87 it's it's reported everywhere this cult potentially connected to child trafficking pictures of kids satan i mean it's going everywhere it's going viral and then out of nowhere it basically gets shut down from according to uh, the police officer who was investigating it with the D.C. police, he showed up to meet with another officer. When he arrived there, he was notified by a third party that the case had been taken over by the CIA. And the official report ends with no further information is, is, has been released. No further action will be taken. And that was it. And then it just falls apart, disappears. At the end of 1987, people are, within a month, people are like, well, it got mixed up. There's all this confusion. There's never an explanation about the technology, about this apparent you know, they, they had obviously had connections to people all, all around the world. Um, 
And it's just kind of like, yeah, well, we blew that all out of, the, out of proportion. And these poor people who are just eccentrics who like to raise their kids in peace, like almost kind of like peaceful parenting is what they claim. Like they're just raising free children. This case goes away at the end of 87. Then all of a sudden it pops back up in 1993 and the Associated Press that the, it says that the FBI is investigating the CIA for potential cover-up of this case. And then again, within months, it just disappears and there's never any reporting on it again. It just disappears and, and it ends up you know, in conspiracy lore culture and, and that's, that's the end of the story officially. So I start diving deep into this and I'm able to find um, – you know, I start referencing every single name I can find. I'm going down all kinds of crazy rabbit holes. The Finders cult was actually doxxed a couple years ago, and they have there's a list that's circulating online that lists every single member that has been associated with the Finders. And I've definitely I've confirmed that the names are factual. And uh, using that as well as a book that was written by one of the original Finders, who at the time was calling himself Genghis Plato, he was. Official, the official spokesman of the the finders who when you go back and find all these old articles he was the one who was quoted as the spokesman giving their statements and everything so i found a book he wrote called the game caller uh because that is what they called the the founder marion petty this, which is a very other mysterious kind of dude he called himself the game caller and essentially their official story is that they live this philosophy that you know you have to break out of conventional norms, and so every day the game caller Marion Petty would say would give different tasks to different people, like hey, go out and find a golden goose, or go go out and bring home two hundred and eighty three dollars, or just these random tasks, and just they would go out and they would you know go on these adventures and come back. And they also claimed to be journalists. They said that they were the reason they call themselves the finders is because they received finder fees for information and for research and journalism. Uh, apparently, they said they were freelance journalists. You, the more you look into this guy, though, Marion Petty, and uh, you start to see that this guy was uh, associated with Air Force intelligence. He was a chauffeur who who drove around a lot of these high-profile intelligence officials and. Then later on in the early 2000s, a journalist by the name of Dylan Brandt, who, you know, that that's a whole another topic. This guy is a, a really great researcher who has basically been removed from the Internet because of his attempts to fight Google. And that's like a whole another conversation. But I was able to contact him, and he was actually leaked to document a government memo that details all of Petty's history, his whole, like, military history. And this guy was Air Force Intelligence. He was... Uh, Air Force Intelligence, and then supposedly left that and had no contact with them for the rest of his life. That's the official story. And then goes on to create this weird little cult that is called the Finders that are apparently just you know eccentric journalists who are traveling around the world and you know getting data for all kinds of people. Um, that is you know far from the truth of the matter. Now, I, I, I don't want to ruin where I'm going with the documentary, but I can say I contacted their spokesperson, whose his real name is Robert Terrell or Toby Terrell, and he does live in uh, Gainesville, Florida. Still, he's out there. Again, all these people are in Florida for some reason. And I used his book, The Game Caller. I read it online and was able to find an amazing amount of detail about their version of events, which, you know, again, they say this is all just blown out of water, that this is you know, blown out of proportion. There's nothing to it. And I contacted him when I was driving through Florida for my tour and I actually went to his house and I did a sit down interview with him that I have that has not been released. And I'm, you know, I'm holding on tight behind lock and key until we can release this documentary because I sat down face to face with this guy and I drilled him with these questions. You know, I treated him with respect as I will any human being, but absolutely I, I asked him to his face if they were trafficking, you know, children, if they were connected to the CIA. And, um, 
you know, spoiler alert, he doesn't admit to it. <laughs> Careful about what I say. Yeah, <laughs> just... <laughs> yeah, dude, it's good, though. Let's just say it's really interesting, and it's really intense. It gets really intense, especially towards the end there. Yeah, um, I, I, I do plan. So this documentary will be coming out, I'm hoping, by the end of the year for sure. This one's going to involve a lot more work. And as I said, the Epstein documentary kind of sets the stage for this, and it does focus on the finders, but it's more about this concept of, international networks that are helping with this this pedophile um activity going on around the world around the country and you know at the least i can say this because quite honestly i'm not sure what the conclusion of the documentary is going to be yet because i have so much information to go through i've got my own you know doc my own interview i need to rewatch. i've got all these files but i can see where it's headed right I don't know that there's any truth to the Satanism. I don't even know 100% if like, we can find conclusive evidence of the, the, the child aspect. Although, like I said, the initial police reports definitely make it clear that there was pictures of naked kids. And in the words of Robert Terrell, he says, Doesn't, don't all parents have naked pictures of their kids? Is that unusual? And you know, he, he kind of dismisses it like that. But without a doubt, this group was connected to the CIA and was connected to intelligence. And even to the point that at one point the CIA admitted that they had trained some of their agents for computer training under an, uh, an org- organization called Finders Corp International, which is a company that you can find nothing about and has basically disappeared from the history books. But we have a st- you know this this quote that is you know is uh, directly from the CIA, you know basically denying that they had anything to do with it. And again, this is all reported by mainstream press at the time, which to me is a good example of just how much mainstream press has changed just in the last twenty years. You know what I mean? This kind of thing wouldn't be touched by by any of AP or Washington Post these days other than to just make fun of it. But in the 80s, in the early 90s, this stuff actually made the news. And, and of course, it disappeared very quickly, but it did make the news. So at the very least, we know for sure that this organization in some way, and that's kind of what I'm digging into. I'm learning more and more about Marion Petty, and he gets connected to a whole other web of people that are familiar names and faces for people who've dove down these rabbit holes. But uh, needless to say, this is just, you know, if you've never heard of the Finders, Go start your research, and, and you will be amazed by what's out there. It's disturbing, you know what I mean, that this is one of those things that just hasn't been explored. And uh, needless to say, I'm taking precautionary measures because with Epstein, he goes after people in the form of lawsuits and 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 verbal threats and things like that. And if there's truth to these things, which I believe there are, then uh, I know that there's a lot of people who don't want this information out. It's crazy how they were able to make this just go away. You know, like the CIA ended the investigation and the media all stopped reporting. Kind of how no one talks about the dozens and dozens of children that are killed every month in Yemen by Saudi Arabia. The, par- the government parrots that is the mainstream media don't allow this information to spread. No one reports on it. No one... Which they should, right? But now, all of a sudden, Saudi Arabia, we're all told we have to we have to pay attention to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is in the news now. One journalist was killed from the Washington Post, who may or may not have been a CIA asset, and and the world now knows about Saudi Arabia. It's, no, it's all over, the TV, everything. And it's crazy that this one man, I mean, it's, what, is, what happened to him reportedly is, is tragic. He was allegedly tortured to death and, like, dismembered and his fingers cut off and it's crazy, but I mean, what's more tragic? Was this guy's death tra- more tragic than a than a school bus full of children being blown to smithereens last month? This selective attention grabbing by the media it, it just shows how much control they assert over people's minds, 
and and there's nothing that I've seen remotely as uh, that, that proves this notion more so than this Khashoggi incident right now. Yeah, absolutely. And man, I'm 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 definitely with you on that. To me, I think any good journalist, researcher, critical thinker out there should be skeptical when the the narrative starts converging. And what I mean by that is is kind of backing up your point is plenty of us in the independent media, unbiased media have been calling out the crimes of Saudi Arabia. You know, obviously there's like potential connections to 9/11 financing and you know, we've been saying this for years, like, hey, why is the U.S. partnered with this, you know, this nation that is gives no rights to women and beheads people and human rights violations and, you know, financing 9-11 and Wahhabism and just, you know, you can go on and on and on. And nobody bad an eye. You know, they're, they're okay with Trump funneling weapons in there. We've been talking about the buses of dead school children and all this kind of stuff and getting no sympathy from the, the corporate media. But for one reason or another, and I guess that remains to be seen – they want everybody to be concerned about this. You know, all of a sudden, left-wing, right-wing, mainstream media is like, oh, Saudi Arabia, maybe we should question, you know, forget Saudi Arabia. Everybody's willing to question them now over this one journalist, as you said, who may be a CIA asset himself. I think there's good reason to be skeptical of that, uh, of this narrative they're pushing now. It definitely. And But what's sad is that still they're just questioning Saudi Arabia based on this one person, Khashoggi. You know, no one. The only person that I've seen talking about Saudi Arabia, uh, their actual crimes is uh, provable crimes that they're they're committing on the world stage is is Rand Paul. You know, he's the one calling out their their mass murder and genocide that the U.S. is aiding and abetting in Yemen right now. You know, we're talking about the starvation of millions of people through these blockades that the U.S. supports and and the the missiles that the U.S. is giving them to drop on these school buses. The the mainstream media is talking about Saudi Arabia, but they're not talking about these these far more important issues in my in my opinion. I've checked out the mainstream news a little bit on this, and the argument that they seem to be having is, you know, this is really terrible that Saudi Arabia is doing this, but they're maintaining our interests in the Middle East. So it's almost like they're saying that all the genocide is good. They're out there doing the genocide for us, so we're kind of upset about this one reporter. It's so bizarre, the the logic that, that... But I definitely saw that as one of the major talking points. This country can't give up Saudi Arabia as an ally because they're so vital to, quote, unquote, our interests out there. It's hysteria, but it's it's I guess it's just par for the course at this time, right? Like I mean, this isn't the first time we've seen selective outrage about an important topic. And that's what I was saying. It kind of remains to be seen where this narrative is going because we know that the U.S. is tightly partnered with uh, Saudi Arabia, and they seem to have no interest in ending that partnership. Yet, you know, their people are starting to be hypercritical. Of course, you got like Trump saying like, hey, he's – He's just as innocent as Kavanaugh or whatever he said, something like that, you know, and not being necessarily interested in looking at them, but at the same time kind of saying, like, if there's truth to this, you know, there's going to be consequences or whatever. I don't know. I think there's I think there's bigger geopolitical moves unfolding here behind the scenes than than we might be able to see at the moment. Um, Plenty of reason to be skeptical, as I said, whenever the people who we know consistently lie to us and feed us misinformation and, and BS, when they all start repeating and parroting the same message, we should be skeptical of that and ask, well, why are they all agreeing now all of a sudden? You know what I mean? Like you, because before, 
there might be a couple people here and there who are like, hey, we don't need to be partnered with Saudi Arabia. But generally, the consensus was like, yeah, let's work with them, right? And even now, like Trump is Trump and some of his supporters and even just people who are supportive of this relationship with Saudi Arabia are saying we have to, you know, if, if we punish Saudi Arabia by saying stop giving them weapons, we're going to lose a bunch of jobs. So, I mean, it just shows you the state of this country that people, which I understand, obviously, like people – they, they're worried about their jobs and taking my jobs and all that kind of stuff. But they use that as a way to just short circuit people's logical and critical thinking and say, well, I would rather have a job than, you know, there not be bombs dropping on those people. I'm sad about it. I don't like that it's taking place. But if it's going to affect me to stop it, then let's just keep doing it. You know what I mean? And I think that's what's more disturbing about this whole thing to me people can justify they can do these mental gymnastics to justify the wholesale slaughter of children and genocide so that Raytheon can open up a new factory in Alabama and and all of it's done so because the TV helps them do that you know the mainstream media it, it helps them to to come to terms and and have these contradictory thoughts in their head to where it's okay you know the TV hasn't really showed me any of that but I guarantee you if if people were shown pictures of these children on television of the of the carnage that that goes on on a daily basis over there, uh, there'd be they'd be far less apt to support it. You know that's kind of how the Vietnam War was was uh, brought to its knees eventually. You know they, these pictures. There was the one picture of the napalm girl. You know she just that one single picture was so powerful that it like it it helped accelerate the end of the Vietnam War like really really swiftly. And but that's not that's not kosher these days you can't show pictures of these murdered children on television you can't show them on your website either you can't show them on facebook or you get censored if you show them on your own website then google takes your ads away that's there's that much control over it so it's easy for people to justify their jobs and by allowing uh the saudi arabias to continue killing children when all it's basically just a fleeting thought in the back of their mind because it's never the information is never given to them it's never presented to them on their televisions, and they essentially just stay in their own little bubble while you know these children are dehumanized and starved to death for for profit essentially yeah and it's it's very interesting that you say that about the Vietnam War and it being on t v and there being this massive resistance to the Vietnam War, and we don't really have that today, and me and Derek noticed that. This past week, weekend, actually, when we went to D.C. for the Women's March on the Pentagon, which was organized by Cindy Sheehan, I believe, it was mostly people who were alive and protesting during Vietnam, not many young people. And that was awesome to see them out there. Like, literally, like, some of them had oxygen tanks on motorized wheelchairs and everything. And a lot of them were – there were a lot of veterans, you know, and a lot of older people who – might have lost children in war, but definitely people who were alive and protesting during Vietnam and have been doing it ever since. And it seems like most of that vocal anti-war movement seems to be people who are connected in some way or people from back then, because now what they're showing on the TV is the outrage of the day and the the war in the streets, and that's what the kids are showing up for. There were a lot of people at the protest, and the organizers did a great job, but it was deaf. You could tell the demographic, like, obviously, the, the young people were missing. I went to the Women's March, the kind of mainstream co-opted Democrat Party-controlled Women's March back in January. I attended the Vegas and uh, Los Angeles marches, and as expected, you know, it was 
it was just a recruiting effort for the Democratic Party. And, you know, I'd, I'd interviewed a number of women before the conference who, and even a few that actually did attend or before the march, who said, you know, despite the labeling that this is a women's march, right, which obviously that's a, kind of a, a broad, broad uh, messaging platform, it was very much directed at left-leaning Democratic Party supporting anti-Trump women. You know, the conservative women wouldn't have been welcomed there and even, you know, said as much that they didn't feel welcome there. Um, Non-voting women likely wouldn't have felt welcome there. Uh, definitely Trump-supporting women wouldn't have felt welcome there. So despite being this women's march, this kind of broad branding, it was very much about trying to direct in the energy and I think just kind of co-opt on this increasing uh, you know, awareness that you know you have sort of a, a revival i think of feminism in some ways and like the me too movement and those type of things trying to capture that zeitgeist but direct it as we've seen with plenty of other major marches in the past back into just reinforcing that same bs like getting people to vote getting people to support the the democratic party as the answer and i mean that's exactly what it was top to bottom front to back like it was it was just totally co-opted there was no anti-war messaging there was I mean, it was it was environment, it was immigration, it was a number of different things that I'm not going to say they don't affect women, but the goal of this march that we attended this weekend, the Women's March in the Pentagon, which, as you said, was organized by Cindy Sheehan and Emma Fiala and some people from Press News and a couple other organizations, and yeah, they tended to be more left-leaning, progressive, but it was a, they made it very strictly from the beginning in all messaging and all their promotion online that this was a nonpartisan thing. People said they wanted to bring, like, giant trump balloons and banners and they're like nope you know you can if you want an anti-trump sign that you know we're not going to tell you not to do that but we're not going to like make this about trump or about the republicans or about anything because both parties are are war parties and so i was you know i love that messaging and branding obviously because it's the facts it's the truth it's the reality um cindy sheehan longtime anti-war activist pretty much since 9-11 some people may know her story her son Casey Sheehan was one of the first people to die in the war on terror after 9/11, and she became a very vocal uh, critic of the war. She like famously went and like camped out on George Bush's ranch in Texas and got arrested. And she's worked with the ladies of Code Pink, who've been arrested like I mean probably hundreds of times now for confronting everybody from Henry Kissinger to George Bush. So even though I may disagree on the final end goal of the solutions when it comes to some of these people i know that they are allies in the sense of fighting against the war and you know like you guys are saying there's no anti-war movement in the mainstream both parties continue to embrace these bloated military budgets you know billions of dollars you know the biggest budgets we've ever seen voted on by the vast majority of both parties there's not even an anti-war candidate by any means or any stretch of the imagination um so it's important for this. And as you were saying, John, like a lot of these people are veterans of both literal veterans of the Vietnam War and veterans of the kind of activist movements of that time period who are still sick of this and who are who realize that not only does war affect women, because that's, you know, let's be real about it. The vast majority of people fighting in wars still to this day happen to be men. So when the men, when the husbands and the, the, da the dads and the brothers and the uncles go off to fight and they're killed in these conflicts – Women and children are typically left behind, and when the U.S. is dropping bombs, you know, those bombs don't discriminate, right? So men, women, and children die in the bombings. But once the bombing campaigns begin, the vast majority of the, the refugees tend to be women and children. 
in, in many cases. Now, there are exceptions to that. I'm not trying to say that there are never any men who are refugees. It affects women, but they absolutely made it clear that, hey, men are welcome here. Everybody's welcome here. Political parties are not, you know, Democrat or Republican. Like, and in fact, throughout the day, and, and John, you know, you can speak on this as well, that even, you know, you had your stereotypical chants you've heard at every single march since the beginning of activism. They went through the gambit, dude. They, they yeah. pretty much went every single one. But you also had, like, I mean, I, I kind of, in, I was up front filming Cindy Sheehan when she was leading the march, and she's, like, making it clear to them. She's like, both parties are, she's like, both parties are war parties. And, and then she started to chant, which was my favorite, saying, fuck this shit. Fuck that. I was like, yeah, there you go. That's pretty direct and, like, you know, straight to the point. But I just love the fact that she's just, like, I mean, I don't know how old she is. She's got to be 50, maybe 60 years old, and she's just, like, hardcore. She doesn't care, you know what I mean? She's calling out these liars. She knows they're both full of it, you know, and she wants people to see that. So they didn't hide that or try to market their thing in any sort of palatable mainstream way, which is why you didn't hear about it in the corporate media. You know, the only people who covered it were independent media like us and, of course, the Russians. And I think I saw one local news station report because I was searching for it yesterday, and I saw, like, some local small report, a couple of paragraphs, you know, nothing deep or investigative or anything like that. Um, and that's just where we're at now. Like these kind of things are not going to get covered because the corporate media is controlled by the, the military industrial complex. Facebook is partnered with the Western military industrial complex via the Atlantic Council. And so they don't want this information to get out. Uh, they don't want people to know about these sort of things. But I do think the kind of positive side of this is i honestly think that that was probably just the beginning of something new like there was definitely even though it was maybe two three hundred people at the most i'm not very good at estimating crowds but there's a few hundred people out there which honestly was better than what i was expecting i really didn't think there would be much people even though i support the cause like you know i still felt like okay this is going to get swept under the rug nobody's going to hear about it um especially because you know we're losing our access to social media to spread the word about something like this but the general feeling that I got and from the, hearing the women talk was like, this is just the beginning of something we're going to do. Like, you know, their goal is to revive the anti-war movement. And they were also, uh, one other thing about it is like the, the march was the 51st anniversary of a march on the Pentagon back in the day, which obviously had tens and thousands of people. That just, again, shows you where we're at. We, we just through the conversation today, we're talking about stories that used to be reported on the mainstream press. We're talking about marches that you used to hear about on TV or that, you know, that they couldn't ignore. But because of the control of the media and just uh, labeling anybody who questions things as conspiracy theorists or just attacking people, we've seen both the the loss of uh, of a free press as well as through that loss of free press, the shrinking of these anti-establishment, anti-war movements. You know, so hopefully this will be the beginning of something longer. And I think we can all agree that protests have a place, but they don't stop the war machine per se right so i think hopefully and i was asking cindy about this hopefully some of these people will start thinking about alternatives and, and options to not funding the war machine because i think we all understand that's what it really comes down to yeah i agree and there's there's there are some voices in washington right now that are anti-war um like tulsi gabbard who's a veteran you know she has some credibility and justin amash yeah i mean i did i totally disagree with her uh economically speaking but as far as war is concerned you know she's been there she's seen people die and she knows the horrors of war and she's one of the qualified people in washington to make decisions on things like that and sadly you know the, the majority of her peers they 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 laugh at her and ridicule her and and don't vote on any of her anti-war legislation and she she aimed or she 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 crafted a bill she and Rand Paul crafted a bill bipartisan bill last year 
which is like one of the most logical bills that you could think could, that the government could ever construct, which was called Stop Arming the Terrorists. This was a bill to, 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 for the U.S. to stop giving weapons to terrorists in Syria and other places. Well, 13 people voted for, for that bill to pass. 13 people out of, all, out of all, everybody in Congress. And that just shows you the state that we, you know, like the what we're up against here. The the representatives of the people out there are are pro war. Republicans are for big government if with war, and Democrats are for war if with big government. And in order for this to change, we know we need this information to to spread like wildfire. And and the anti war movement needs to become like to come become cool again. You know, there was an anti war movement when Bush was in power. When when Bush was threatening to go into Afghanistan and Iran, and yeah, it was partisan, but it was massive. There was a massive anti-war movement, and Obama got into power and put it to sleep, literally. These people went back. When they woke back up, they're, they're no longer anti-war. They're just anti-Trump, and they're, they, they bought completely into the two-party paradigm. They're, they're told exactly what to hate by, about Trump every day, or it's, it's Stormy Daniels this week. It's his hair. It's his, you know... It's, it's all superficial bullshit instead of actual lives and saving lives of children and women and and men that don't need to be dying in all these wars for profit. You know that this it's why this 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 program and what you do, bros, and what we what we do at the Free Thought Project and what we've been doing for years as activists is to try to get this information out to try to make people anti-war. You don't wake up to the war machine and then go back to sleep. So once you know, once we wake somebody up to it, then they they won't go back to sleep. As long as we do it in a nonpartisan way, you know, and that's what's important when you just need to keep spreading this information and uh, and getting it out there to, to help people break free from the support of this murder on a global scale. I'm glad you said that, Matt, because like I mentioned the tour and honestly, and I was telling John this in person, like I've been struggling with some depression the past couple months, like from, you know, the tours, like helping me connect people I'm like, yeah, we're not alone. I'm, I mean, I'm spreading the word and people are thirsty and hungry for this information. And then I kind of come home and like tend to isolate myself a bit because I'm just deep into this research and start to feel like, damn, like there's just no hope and this sort of thing. But a friend while I was on tour just this last week reminded me like, hey, man, like just because they deleted our social media channels, we prove that there are millions of people out there who want this information. And those people aren't just going to forget, you know, like you said, Matt, they're not just going to go back to sleep. They're not just going to become anti-war or anti, you know, pro-system. They're not just going to become pro-war, pro-system all of a sudden just because a Facebook page is gone. So it really did, like, I felt like I needed to hear that because it was just a good reminder, like, you're right, like, we've done a lot of good work and those people are out there now and we just have to still communicate and connect to them, but they're still there and they're not going to go away. Exactly. And we're going to, do everything we can to try to build a new place for this information to get disseminated. If you do want to help us get in front of more people, rating, giving us a five-star rating and a good review on your podcast player of choice, uh, iTunes especially, it would be great if you could just take the couple minutes to do that. It would get us in more people's feeds. And you can check out our website at thefreethoughtproject.com. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>